Hi, I'm JP. Hey, this is Steiger. Hi, I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords. Uh, JP, would you like to um, briefly introduce yourself or uh, plug something, either or? There, uh, we were just uh, out eating at a place uh, in our neighborhood called Esperpento. They were, it's like a tapas place, and they were closed down because of a seismic retrofit, I think. Uh, but they're back open now, and they're Ooh. good. And they're like, yeah, and they're in the mission uh, on like 22nd and Valencia, right? Thereabouts. Yeah. 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 And so they're good. So yeah, sure. I will plug Esperpento. Not that they'll hear this or give us free food or anything, but you know, <laughs> one good turn deserves another. I bet one person will hear this and eat there. All right. Steiger, uh, do you uh, have anything? Would you like to introduce yourself or plug something? Uh, my name is Steiger. I'm terrible at the internet and at introductions. I, I just, I want to like piggyback off Esperpento, another favorite restaurant of mine, Yamo, also recently reopened and I got to eat there for the first time in like almost a year. So Burmese noodles on 18th Street and Mission in the Mission neighborhood of San Francisco. They're a, they're a beloved neighborhood um, staple. Literal hole in the wall. Yeah, yeah. And we're so used to restaurants here just closing down and it being really sad. So when restaurants close down but then open back up because they were just remodeling or something and managed to manage to survive being out of business for, for a while, it's always a relief. How do you manage that? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you guys want to get started on some topics? Hit me with the topics. All right, JP, you have, um, and I, I wanted to, I wanted to get to this because it's relevant to, um, to this show and listeners of this show. Uh, you have a brief history of my using lords as a comedy word, uh, 2008 to present, and why British people will never, probably never get this quasi joke. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of realized that. Yeah, that I was that I was maybe a possible meme carrier for this for for lords. Oh, oh yeah, like I definitely got the lord thing from um, lords management. Yeah. Okay, so I'll I'll go back to what I believe is the beginning. Uh, I worked at a game studio called Two K Marin that was in Nevada, California, uh, and we made a game called We Built a Team there, and we made a game called Bioshock Two, um, and then after that things. Kind of fell apart, uh, but one of uh, this is the secret introduction, by the way. Right. Well, we're, you know, I've been introduced, but now we're getting my backstory. You know, and so uh, design hire number one. Like th- there were there was eight of us at the start, and we had come out from Boston and stuff. And uh, but then we were like building a team, so we started looking for uh, different candidates and stuff. And the very first person that we hired for the design department at Two K Marin. Um, as a level designer, was named Tynan Wales, um, and I actually don't. It's been a while since we've talked, so I, had, I actually don't know. Last I heard, he was up in Portland, but I don't know if you're out there, Tynan. You're great. I enjoyed working with you. I hope everything's I hope everything's good in your world. But um, and so yeah, like in in 2008 and 2009, the team was coming together, and we were building a game and building a studio, and that was all good. And I remember him telling us one day regaling us with tales of his of his adolescence i guess where he and i believe a high school buddy um were were painting were were like playing warhammer like warhammer or warhammer 40k you know which is a miniatures based war game and they referred to all the little like you know dudes all the little units the little warriors in those games as lords you know 
That was just what they called them. And it just fits so perfectly because if you think about just like the aesthetics of Warhammer and kind of especially Warhammer 40K. It's so opulent. Yeah. Well, it's Lords, you know, and it's this is this is where it gets like really difficult to kind of break down exactly what was originally meant by Lords. You know, like it's it's like you're sort of like this majestic and yet also kind of ridiculous like giant muscle dude in like power armor or you have like a giant gun or something it's you know but i mean over time we realized that this was actually a much more expansive concept you know because everybody in world of warcraft is a lord you know You, you log on and it's just a bunch of lords running around and all that and this is this is in the lore of the game right yeah yeah i would say so yeah yeah you know it's all there's just a ton of lords um and so, yeah, and so Lords just kind of became, you know, that spread around the studio, and we just sort of used it. Um, and then a few years later, um, post-2K Marin and all that, um, I, you know, I, I started getting to know the Idle Thumbs guys, like Chris Remo and, and Jake Rodkin. And, um, and yeah, like, I remember bringing it up to them, and they thought it was kind of entertaining. And then one, um, I think it was GDC 2012, um, I think Chris Remo was staying with me at the time and I had a dream. It was like one of the days of GDC and I had this dream, you know, I guess my brain was just full of GDC anxieties and stuff like that. GDC being a game developers conference. Um, and I had a dream that night where I was at a talk by valve and they were talking in like a completely serious, like just, this is the kind of talk that we do. We're sharing our craft, etc. They had, I think they had only recently acquired Dota, you know, like just the, the, the massive colossus of a game, of a MOBA game franchise. And so they, but they were referring in their slides and stuff, they were referring to Dota as being of the Lord's management genre. And they were just talking about, you know, like, okay, well, yeah, we wanted to be competitive in the Lord's management genre. And it was just, you know, so yeah, Lord's management. And I guess the Idle Thumbs guys liked that enough that they like made their Dota clan, Lord's management and whatever. Um, and so, yeah. And I think from there, you know, I mean, Idle Thumbs, you know, they, they had a much bigger megaphone than just me like making jokes on twitter or whatever and so yeah it just kind of spread from there but it's still kind of like this strange little proprietary concept um and yeah so but it's just like this weird little thing and then like you know i I have some i have some uh english friends and just friends from countries where well i mean i guess it's mainly the uk where a lord is like just an actual person you know it's like it's like senator or something here. Like you can just be a lord, you know, like a landed gentry with a title that's still kicking around from like the Middle Ages or whatever. And so having, you know, you, you might have a, a relative or something that's like Lord Buckingham or whatever, you know. And that and so I think I, I think probably people from the UK just it, it probably just fall that, that just the whole joke of calling somebody a lord and like referring to like Warhammer 40k dudes as lords, you know? I, yes, but so I think, I think it's. I, I could see it falling flat or I could see it becoming just even richer, even more comedic. Like imagine, imagine if this podcast were called Topic Senators. Oh man. Yeah. That would be that would have a whole different feel to it, I guess. It's also just the fact that Lord is like this old concept, so it's kind of evoking this grandeur of 
long ago monarchy and stuff you know it's like lords you know like you you have a cape you have a cape and you're like sitting on a throne in like a symmetrical pose and you're just like you know you have a giant sword that you know was enchanted by your grandfather or something you know Anyway, yeah. So yeah, that's that's how I came to know and use and love the term lords. Yeah, and I think that like that whole like the trappings of grandeur really what tie these all together. Like the old timey lords with like cloaks and finery, and then like the four like the forty k and the Dota and the World of Warcraft people all have those opulent shoulder armors. That's the point at which I think you become a lord in those games. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And in, th- in this podcast, instead of the awkward, is everybody ready and explaining what th- what's going to happen, the listeners are going to hear a, a glorious uh, set of trumpets playing a fanfare to announce our entrance. Outstanding. Fantastic. Yeah, I can see it now. Are you guys ready for the next topic? Sure. Uh, Steiger, tell us about emergency preparedness. Oh man, so I, I work in emergency preparedness professionally and I have, I was doing it volunteer since I, I grew up in a place where there were like hurricanes yearly. So I kind of got used to the idea that you had to have a certain amount of water and certain amount of food just kicking around and maybe you would borrow your neighbor's generator and that would be good. And now I work in that like personal preparedness area as my job so I spend a lot of time kind of immersed in that and also I live in California where things have been popping off in terms of disasters just the weather's all over the place the fires are going out no one has many many people have yeah yeah April and I bought uh, a bunch of emergency supplies for um for the power outage like because we had no idea when the power was going to come back and including like life straws and things like that Mm mm-hmm so yeah, just big, big ups on having like a gallon of water per person per day for like a week if you can fit it, or at least three days. And yeah, like one of, one of the things that like JP and I were talking about this earlier and thought it would be a good topic is just I've seen the space around like the people who are interested in preparedness completely change over the five years I've like worked in this space where like when I first joined, I was like constantly like having people come up to me and be like, oh, it's so good to see young people interested in this sort of thing. Like it would usually be retirees who were kind of like the main people who had the time and the resources to do this. And like just as the political climate has changed and culture has changed, I'm seeing like more and more young people who are just invested in having like that community level of preparedness starting with the personal preparedness yeah. show up. So yeah, I will still hear people like refer to, they'll refer to like survivalists as, as a joke, like to denigrate the sort of people who like right. would go out I, into the wilderness yeah, I feel like and, there's and like sliding scale of like preppers who take it like way over the top. And it's more of like a safety blanket or a status situation. And then there are like the people who are just, trying to like do the best they can to share the resources available to them at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do feel like I, I think this comes just from kind of just generally being more pessimistic about the culture we live in, but I do spend more time now thinking about like, it was very easy to be pessimistic during the power outers that this could just become the new normal. I had several conversations with April, like, like what, 
do we have a plan for this? Like, should we be orienting our lives such that like, if the grid just goes down permanently, we can carry on yeah, somehow, you know, it. yeah, like we can, we can own a farm, but does that mean we mean we know how to farm? Mm -hmm. And like my, my, all of my skills are like that, that I take seriously enough to make a living from are ridiculously power dependent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Same. Yeah. It's a, it's a precarious feeling. Um, but then the power came back on and suddenly, oh, like, no, of course, of course, it's just life is just going to go on as it has uh, for the past hundred years. Yeah, it's going to be fine. It's wild how easily your brain can adapt to your current situation. Like, oh, things are terrible now. They're going to be terrible forever. Oh, things are fine now. They're going to be fine. Like, that's how I find my brain working a lot of the time. I wanted to talk about life straws. Like, so we got, we got. Um, yeah, they're super cool. We got like a cool, like hand crank powered radio with a flashlight mm -hmm. uh, which was which was a neat piece of tech but i think the coolest one is just these plastic tubes that have smaller plastic tubes inside of them um that are too small for bacteria to fit through and so if you drink water through these straws it will filter out any bacteria in the in the water mm-hmm um, which is really neat. And I was like researching, like I had this idea, like, what if I drank my own pee through the water? Would it make it not taste like pee? I think you just wouldn't get a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, the answer was like, I actually looked this up. Um, and the answer is no, it would still taste like <laughs> pee, but it wouldn't have any bacteria in it. So that's nice. Yeah. Like the, the life straws will not like, they don't filter out like toxins and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the ideal would be like boiling the water. Um, yeah, you can boil it, or, like, another thing, if you have, like, a gallon of water and you put, like, seven drops of just non-scented bleach in it and let it sit for a couple hours, like, you'll get some mostly drinkable water. Yeah, huh. that's good to know. Yeah, do, do you want to, um, do you have a spiel, like, an elevator pitch for, like, what kind of preparedness, and let's say we're talking to people in California and we're dealing with California-branded disasters. Do you have, like, a spiel of what um, you recommend people do? Um, well, the I specifically work for a program that's, like, available nationwide that's called CERT for Community Emergency Response Team, and uh, it start, in the U.S. it started in L.A. right around the time of the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989. They had borrowed it from Japan, and then San Francisco, which was also quite impacted by that earthquake, started it up like in 1990, pretty much. Um, so like, and then that ended up being adopted at the federal level. And there, like, there are certain programs in just about like most communities or like counties with like a fire an established like fire department or police department or public health department, depending on where you are, like have one of these programs. So I would look into that because um, I just I and I took like the the equivalent of cert training in San Francisco is called NERT and I moved out to California from the East Coast so I took that training like pretty early into living here and I just learned so much that I did not have answers to um, and it's not just about like earthquakes it's it was like about how the water system works and like I'm into civic nerdery like that in general. Yeah. So it was completely That's my jam. Cool. Yeah. I am. I'm really impressed. Like my, my wife is a park ranger and she's just also a lot more aware of the world around us than I am. Uh, and so like 
I was very happy that like when the power was about to go out, she just happened to know that our water is gravity fed. And so you don't need to worry about not being able to get water lo at our house. It's, it's a good, <laughs> a person like that is a good resource to have around. Yeah. There, and there's so many details like that. Like what I liked about going through the training myself was at least in San Francisco, we do it over the court. We do like one class of like three hours every week for six weeks. And each of those weeks, they mm -hmm. give you like a little bite sized amount of homework to be like, all right, first we go home and like figure out where the like shut off for the like utilities and the gas are both inside and like outside at the street level in your home. And then the next week you like start like trying to get enough water, figuring out where you would get water, where you would meet. And then like each week in the six weeks, you get like a little bit of homework to be a little more prepared. So you're not just trying to tackle this huge list of so many things all at once. Yeah, that sounds great. Are you guys ready for the next topic? Yeah. Sure. Uh, so there is an apple that I am like more excited about than I feel like deserves um, uh, an apple called uh, they I think that they named it I think it was from like an online name competition it's called the cosmic crisp um, and supposedly it's 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 like the the honey crisp but maybe easier to breed not easier to breed but easier to grow um, and um it has a launch date which i thought was fascinating and like the reason they can have a launch date for produce is that um uh like the honey crisp it's well it's seasonal but also like they they last on the shelf um like like normally when if if you when you think of produce you think of like well they need to pick it when it's exactly ready and then ship it and sell it as soon as possible but like if it can sit there you can actually wait a few days and like you can first buy this apple on, I think December 1st. Um, and it's, it was just like really bizarre to me that, that this fruit has a launch date, which I, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Yeah. It's super good. Um, and I am, I'm, I'm really like hoping like there's like a uh, people lining up at midnight at, at yeah, the Safeway absolutely. to, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, oh, we totally. were definitely joking about like, because I think I think this apple's coming out of Washington State, mm -hmm. and like we were just joking about like driving up there and doing like the whole like in in the front seat of your car like food, fast food f review of this new item this new menu item that I've I've seen a lot of those videos, and I'm just very hype about this apple, and I think I feel the level of hype <laughs> that those. Yeah, the viewers feel yeah, yeah. about like a new spicy <clears throat> well, yeah. tender. <clears throat> we were watching the, uh, the the live streamed keynote announcing this apple, <laughs> uh, and yeah, we were yeah the they they unveiled it dramatically. No, not actually, but um, but yeah, and I, I yeah, it is always interesting. Like most of the apple varieties that you hear about come out of some or other university. I, I want to say the Fuji apple came out of like one of the university uh, things and or like just like some some sort of research type academic thing in Japan maybe or I don't know yeah, yeah. at least and, and at least a few of them came like came out of University of Minnesota yeah like they just yeah. have this huge agricultural <clears throat> program and a lot of what they make are apples and you can get apple samples in the mall of America <clears throat> and it's just yeah. the whole thing that reminds me um, so there's a have, have you heard of alala berries 
Oh, no. I have not. Yeah, so the Alala berry is, it's some sort of hybrid of, like, a blackberry and a raspberry. And um, we found out about it uh, driving down uh, Highway 1, you know, along the Pacific Coast south of the city here. Um, down towards, like, you pass through uh, Pacifica and then, like, Half Moon Bay and uh, Pescadero and all that. And so we started seeing, like, yeah, I think, and there's a little place that we stopped in. You see, yeah, I'm plugging another uh, restaurant. There's a place that we stopped into at Pescadero called Duarte's Tavern. And they offered this, uh, they had the usual, you know, just like diner fare and stuff like that. Uh, And they had pies, of course. And one of the pies was Ulala Berry. Mm -hmm. I forget exactly where the L's are. I, I, I don't know exactly how to spell it. Um, I think it's O L O L A I L I E. That sounds right. Berry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we drove further south to a place called Swanton Berry Farm, which is actually a place that like grows some of these things. They have like a you pick strawberry thing, and probably some other fruit and stuff. But um, but yeah, and so they have a little family tree of the Olala berry on the wall at Swanton, Ver- Swanton Berry Farm that shows like the blackberry, the raspberry, and then like. The Tayberry, uh, yeah, the, the Loganberry, like mm-hmm, all of the different mm-hmm. hybrids that come from kind of the cross-pollinating of the two berry types. Yeah, yeah. And so it's basically like, yeah, if you cross this with this and this with this, and most of those like later, you know, not just general colloquial fruits like the blackberry or whatever, most of those were done at university research programs, I guess, where, you know, agricultural students and researchers and stuff i guess are like hybridizing stuff and trying stuff out um so yeah a lot of berries are damn good they're they're like they've got they're a little more tart maybe than than uh than your average raspberry um they're just really good yeah and and the alala berry the alala berry pie at duart's tavern is super good and yeah it was just it was just kind of cool to find out about a variety of you know this thing that you kind of take for granted because it's like, well, yeah, raspberries, you know, everybody, raspberries are everywhere. They're just a, but it's like, no, they're specific. I think the Alali berries are one of those berries that they have like one week where they're really in season. Oh, that's true. Yeah. They're kind of rare. Most of the places that grow them use organic practices. And there were like two years in a row where they had like a devastating, like fungus. I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Just didn't. Like it wiped out a lot of the alali berries. So. Yeah, they still had some, but they weren't. They weren't. They stopped offering the uh, the, the U pick thing, where you yeah. can just go out and like get a get a bin and like pick your own amount of fruit and weigh it and pay for it. So yeah, it's a bummer. Right. So yeah, like some of these crops, I guess, are like more sensitive than you know. Whereas like strawberries, like strawberries, kind of. I mean, in California, strawberries <laughs> grow pr- almost year round. I think. And, you know, most of them are good and they're all kind of genetically the same, I think. Although, yeah, maybe there's a whole diversity of strawberry genetics and varietals and stuff that I, that I just don't know about. <laughs> right. All right. You guys ready for another topic? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is a, a write-in. Uh, a listener, Larry, asks, are there horses? I have seen horses. I believe there are still horses. We can't go to a webcam because because then we would be <laughs> typing and that would that would show up on the microphone real loud. So like I can't go to like a live cam of a horse. I bet there are some on like Twitch. I'm I'm pretty sure that horses are not just an an elaborate hoax. You know, it's 
I mean, it would just have to be so elaborate at this point, you know, like, because I've stood next to a That horse. would be so fun, though. Yeah, yeah. Like, we, we talked, we've talked about, like, inserting people into the historical record, but <laughs> we didn't talk about what it would take to insert an, a fictional animal. Right, just an animal into... that just straight up, yeah. I've heard about, God, I'm, I, I don't remember any specifics at the moment, so this isn't nearly as funny, but, like, people thinking that an animal that does in fact exist is is mythological or something for like oh, most sure. of their lives oh, oh yeah this might have been like the duck-billed platypus and i can't remember who it was that was that was telling me like they thought that duck-billed platypuses were like a made-up creature because of course it, it seems like a made-up creature certainly oh yeah, um, oh, yeah. they're obviously bullshit <laughs> yeah, yeah and i'm trying to remember I, I i feel like i have seen a duck-billed platypus at like an aquarium or something but I've only seen, you know, I've 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 definitely only seen a sing a single digit number of platypuses in my life, and those could all have been yeah. manufactured by the Tyrell by the Tyrell Corporation as like extremely right. convincing androids, you know, in the way that they do their their owls and stuff. And it is Furbies. It is after all uh, November of 2019 right. now, so somewhere oh, elsewhere, uh, Rick Deckard is running around looking for Rutger Hauer and uh, you know all those folks. So yeah, we are we are. You're in real time with Blade Runner. Yeah, we just got to drive down to LA. Well, I, I guess I guess in Blade Runner, uh, in the in the Blade Runner version of 2019, San Francisco and Los Angeles just sort of grew together into a gigantic, you know, autonomous city state of just pure city. The whole distance between called San Angeles. That's I think it is. That's a pretty big distance. It, yeah, that would be yeah. really like. We're we're currently in a construction like cost bubble. Like, I don't think um, I don't think there's enough GDP in the United States at that modern construction costs to fill that gap. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, yeah, having driven it a few times now, the distance is pretty mind boggling. Um, but I did find it. I always found that an interesting detail of Blade Runner's future. That like, yeah, you know just these two large metropolitan areas just grew together and it's just all one horrifying mass of parking lots, presumably. It was the only way LA could get right. enough water in the future. <laughs> yeah. I I do feel like I would prefer if I had more horses in my life though. Like just not not like that I interacted with, but just that I saw occasionally. I saw um, a sign on uh, on a Safeway about how how only service animals are allowed inside, and then there was a paragraph defining a service animal. Um, and in that paragraph, I learned that uh, service animals can be dogs or miniature horses. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then I Google image searched uh, horse service animal, and it's amazing. And I can't believe I've never seen one of these in real life. Like, yeah. who would who would yeah. pick if they had to have a service animal? Who would pick a dog instead of a horse, a tiny horse? Right. Yeah, I, I'm. I am kind of amazed that I haven't like seen on social media or something somebody just in a Safeway or something, and they're like, check out this person's service miniature pony. Right. Just yeah, in the soup aisle, just you know, doing normal stuff with the, with the service pony. Yeah. It's, uh, makes me wonder if that whole idea is fake. <laughs> right. Maybe someone defaced that sign to, uh, to fool me. Yeah. 
or like it's or like the law is is still on the books technically but like you can't actually do it you know i mean that's yeah. that's a question All like those miniature ponies are grandfathered in but no more right right yeah right now that now that ponies have been revealed to be a hoax can't can't allow them yeah you can you can bring your android your replicant pony in but i would i would accept a, a service replicant I have a friend who rides out of a stable in Oakland, and I, I can get you that information offline if you really want ponies in your life. It's also great just like following her on social media because she does this thing called a horse yearbook where she like introduces the internet to all of the horses she gets to work with. <laughs> Maybe I just need to follow that social media account. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds very good. Hmm. All right, one more topic. Steiger, uh, you have here being an amateur naturalist from another part of the country. So I, I mostly grew up on the East Coast. I, I've lived kind of a lot of places. Like I was, I've lived in like Minnesota and Florida and Pennsylvania and Maryland and Illinois. And that's all kind of like kind of East-ish. And then I moved out to California and I had like a pretty deep knowledge of East Coast and like just atlantic flora and fauna and life in general and then i like moved out to california and like everything is like thrown out the window like i don't know it's just wild and also just all like in terms of like topics we can both talk about like jp and i spend a lot of times talking about birds and oh. going out into nature and appreciating the birds and the other animals so yeah yeah, and just stuff like, you know, like, the, this is the first, uh, you know, most of the places that I grew up in had blue jays, uh, whereas out here we have scrub jays. So everything right. has its kind of different, you know, West Coast version that, you know, is just, yeah. Although plug for the Florida scrub jay, which should be the state bird. Oh, it's the it's the mockingbird. Yeah, like like five other state or oh, many that's states right. yeah. have a mockingbird. Yeah, like everybody grabbed the mockingbird as their state bird, whereas plenty of states have yeah. you know plenty of interesting birds and yeah. I I don't have this experience myself because I am like, I, I guess I just don't pay enough attention to my surroundings. But I do remember my mother complaining. Um, when she she grew up, we, I grew up on the East Coast as well, but so did she, so did she, and she took a, um, a course about like local flora, um, and was very happy to be able to you know to, to walk around nature and be able to identify all the plants, um, and that all went out the window when she moved out to California, yes, and suddenly we're exactly. in the, the yeah suddenly we're in the San Diego chaparral and like all the trees look wrong. Um, and I, you know, I, I, um, I guess I was 15 when we moved to San Diego. So like, I was still young enough that, um, I was forming my, my tree sense. So like, yeah, it's just trees, I guess. But, um, but they do, they are a very, they are very different over there. Like the, the whole thing where like oaks will like form a tunnel over the road that you're, you're driving right. down doesn't mm-hmm. really happen mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Yeah. Chaparral is like this whole totally different thing. Like redwoods and like any other tree that or brush that depends on fire as part of its life cycle, like 
I grew up in mostly swamps before I moved here, so it's like a complete like, yeah. I'm on the I'm in the red cards now. I'm out of the green and the black cards. <laughs> is, is that is that a Magic the Gathering joke? Yeah, I just. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Totally different deck building out here. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know if I had lived in a place before California where palm where you would just see palm trees. I mean, I, I went to I went to art school in Georgia, but I don't re- really remember yeah, seeing like palm trees the there. Spanish moss. Yeah, there were definitely there were hell. Yeah, Savannah, Georgia. There were definitely hella willow trees with Spanish moss and just that whole romantic, you know, deep South kind of thing. But I don't. Uh, yeah, I mean, you. Yeah, there just weren't palm trees there. Whereas, yeah, California, it's lousy with them, and you know, there's such a huge range of them. So it's like, okay, you get redwoods and you get palm trees and plenty of just normal most places in america deciduous things and whatever so yeah it's definitely yeah it felt a little bit like moving out to an alien planet you know from being in the south and the new england and midwest and stuff where i have like the flip side like growing up in florida like those palm trees are normal to me everything like i feel like i'm the one from the alien planet like (laughs) when i go to most of the rest of the continental (laughs) united states so right yeah. And then if you visit Australia, it's in that's that 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 feels way more alien than any of this, you know, because everything is just so specific to that. You know, there's just it's you know, it was, it was, it's a it's a literal island yeah, kind of ecosystem. And, and the sky is entirely different. That's got to be super weird. The night. Like, yeah. Yeah, I remember looking up at the night sky. I visited Australia, like, I don't know, I guess about nine or ten years ago now. And, um, yeah, like, just looking up and trying to spot, con- knowing that I was not going to be able to spot familiar constellations. Um, it, yeah, it was it was interesting. I have a, a friend who um, moved from, speaking of feeling like you're on an alien planet, I have a friend who moved from Ohio to California and when they started seeing uh, freeway signs were, that were like uh, San Francisco, 400 miles. And, and these were things that they had only seen in like a city that San Francisco that has previously only existed in movies. Yes, exactly. It totally, was, it yeah. was like seeing a, a freeway sign for like, oh, you can go to Jupiter 600 miles. Yeah, that's really the whole thing. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there were a whole ton of, um, I mean, just, yeah, like San Francisco is the kind of place where you know it as an, as a pop cultural artifact. Yeah, it gets blown up in all the disaster first. movies. Yeah, if you've seen any right. disaster movie, the Golden Gate Bridge is getting wrecked. Um, and even just like, you know, just random innocuous movies that like, I wasn't even very aware. Like, mm. I remember seeing Sneakers, uh, the film with like Robert Redford and Dan Aykroyd and et cetera, you know, and they're like spies and whatever. It was like an early nineties. And, um, and yeah, like that movie took place in San Francisco and at the time living in Texas, I guess, seeing it as like, you know, a kid, I, I just didn't, you know, there were plenty of specific San Francisco cues in that movie that I just completely didn't pick up on, but, but yeah. just took as part of the overall setting of like, yeah, this is like a big American city and there's like FBI agents running around and all that. And then 
you know, I, I don't know, like sometime in the last year or two, like I watched the movie for the first time since then. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's like all kind they're they're dropping all kinds of little San Francisco things. Yeah. And it's like interesting because it's it's not just one of those movies that says it's in a city like it was actually filmed in San Francisco. Like, yeah. Recognizably right. like on the Embarcadero or like on the peninsula at multiple points in the film. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to to consider like how much does that actually affect the storytelling? Like it's neat to have the callback. Like if you if, if you live in San Francisco or have visited it, like you will recognize San Francisco in that movie, but does it actually make the movie better to be set there? It's really hard to I, say. There well there is actually like spoilers for the movie Sneaker. Like there's I think there's a bit where he's like one of the characters is being kidnapped or something. Yeah. And like, is trying to like navigate where a location is based on like having been like blindfolded in a car or something. Yeah. You can kind of like retrace those steps based on knowing the local geography. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And they, they, um, if I remember right, uh, they, um, identify which bridge they, went over by yeah. the distance between right. the, the audio distance between the seams and the concrete, yeah. uh, which yeah. is neat, but like, and, and, and it is, it does feel like it makes the being in a specific place does make the movie feel grounded, but it could be in almost any place and still feel grounded. Yeah. I mean, I think what they're going for there, and this is something that people talk about with regards to like making storytelling or world building like rich is specificity where, you know, it doesn't matter if you're not familiar already with like the golden gate bridge and how far apart the, the, the slats are on, or whatever, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily matter to you. Whereas it helps them in the storytelling, it helps them establish that like, the, the characters in this movie are super detail oriented and that they, and that they pick up on something like that. And so like knowing the area in which a movie is shot like really well, because you live there or, you know, have, have visited there a lot, it ends up, you know, it's just kind of like this additional bonus layer to enjoyment of it, you know? And sometimes it, it actually ends up really in like, so um, the Castro theater uh, in, in, in San Francisco here, um, they do a they do a thing every year where they show noir movies uh, called Noir City, um, mm-hmm. and one of the like right after I moved here, I want to say, um, they showed the Humphrey Bogart movie Dark Passage, and it's about the, the movie opens with him escaping from San Quentin prison, I believe, and escaping over the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, and then holding holding up in San Francisco and like figuring out how to lie low and change his identity and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was kind of cool because I had just moved from the North Bay into San Francisco. So there was kind of this resonance there. Um, and then the movie itself takes place within San Francisco proper. And you're seeing like 1940s or 50s versions of like very familiar San Francisco places. Um, and then like, yeah, like the, and the movie ended and we walked out into the night and it was like raining and it was just this incredibly atmospheric immersive kind of moment because it's, it's, it it almost felt like the fictional world of the movie was like still hanging around like smoke in the air or something. Oh, that's neat. Because, because we were in the exact same city and all that. And like, you know, yeah, and just that they had driven past a few of the lo- these locations in the Castro and the Mission or or wherever they go. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I really like that, and that's something that like you can't replicate that 
you know, that doesn't scale, obviously, but for the people who are able to be part of that experience, it's pretty cool. I mean, other media do this a lot more as well. Like, obviously, like, theater is incredibly, you know, time and place specific, so you can do a whole bunch of stuff like that. Whereas a movie, you know, we were watching a movie that was, you know, that was made, like, 70 or something years ago, so... But yeah. Yeah. I guess the value that, and this is kind of circular, but I guess the value that you get out of setting your movie in San Francisco is that even if people don't live there, they've probably seen a bunch of other movies set in San Francisco. So it'll feel familiar Mm, to them in that respect. Yeah. 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 And I think that's also true, especially when you get onto like an international scale. Yeah. Like, you know, there's a few cities that get internationally known via movies status like i, I feel de- definitely paris um yeah like new york and rome and yeah yeah tokyo all those like really big world cities yeah movie cities it was really neat and i'm surprised i haven't i hadn't had this experience already but um the first uh video game that i played that was set in san like an open world san francisco was Watch Dogs 2 um and it was really neat to like, I to find like, find Lake Merritt, you know, in oh, Oakland. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, um, I remember hearing that that ga- hearing about that game coming out and really wanting a tourism mode for it, just because like that's a, you know, I've made some tourism mods for different games and stuff like that, and I just wanted, I didn't really want to play Watch Dogs too, but I really wanted to explore the version of the place where I live. That game almost doesn't need one. Um, I don't remember the opening of the game, but I believe at least very quickly you get to the point where you can just go anywhere. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And just ignore yeah. the storyline. And that's that, honestly, that's how I mostly like, I didn't ignore the gameplay because um, one of my favorite things that that game did was um, the in-game mobile phone has a tourism app where you get, experience points for taking selfies with various landmarks oh nice yeah uh and i just really dug you know doing that and like to the point where like i've explored way more of san francisco in that game than i have in real life like (laughs) i had never seen for example the coit tower in real life which Mm -hmm. seems unbelievable uh, now but um at the time yeah i've seen it but not been there so i'm on team could still be a hoax Right. Yeah, it could be a hologram for all Quite we know. T- yeah, Quake Tower is made up. It's just, yeah, it's a giant hologram full of forces. I had, like, the reverse <laughs> tourism experience where I was playing, uh, like, Assassin's Creed. I think it was Liberation, the one that's set in New Orleans during, like, Code Noir. And I went, I had been to New Orleans before, but I'd never been to the French Quarter. And then, like, a year ago, I went... And I was walking through the French Quarter, and it's like, oh, I remember, like, doing a ridiculous achievement here where I tripped (laughs) up, like, five guards at once or something. Yeah, and just, (laughs) like, like, one of the things I do love about those games is that they're, like, attention to detail in the city that they're in and the kind of, like, art history lens they have. So that was cool that a place felt so real even before I went there in person. Are you guys ready for another topic? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, JP, uh, you have here, what makes some hotels scarier than others? (laughs) Yeah. um, 
yeah, this was just sort of like an open, this is obviously an open-ended kind of thing. Um, I guess we were at a wedding a few weeks ago and the front of the hotel, uh, and, and it was at a hotel and the front of the hotel had the usual kind of like polished modern hotel kind of thing. But then like some parts of the hotel were just being like renovated or something. Yeah. There Uh were a lot of like, and like there was this weird, like half elevator that we were using to get between floors. It wasn't quite a freight elevator, but it was definitely like smaller and might've been like this kind of backup system or something. And so there were just various things about this hotel that like under different circumstances, like if it was completely, if it was mostly empty, which it it definitely was not, I could imagine this hotel being scary. And I just remember like sort of thinking about the different things going on in the, and and it was like just the way it was laid out. It, there were these hallways that went on for like, it actually kind of sprawled out over a, a pretty large, just square, square mileage, square acreage area. Um, yeah, and there were two, like, non-contiguous wings of the hotel that were, like, mirror images of one another, and it was pretty easy to get turned around and then go up to one set of floors and not be able to get to your room. It was kind yeah. of disorienting. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, and, and obviously there's there's totally different kinds of, of, of scary hotel. I mean, there's the, there's the Overlook Hotel from right. The Shining you know, which just like, yeah, is just sort of like a textbook of like different devices that, you know, are creating environmental horror. So I don't even necessarily mean like explicitly horror and like fictionally presented things, but like, yeah. And, and I, the, the qualities that I was finding interestingly, you know, creepy about this place just sort of surprised me in how arbitrary they were. And yeah, it just kind of got me thinking like, yeah. I stayed on the Queen Mary Hotel, which is a former, like, super luxury steamliner boat, like, that's down in uh, Long Beach, California, and that one was a little spooky just because it was designed for people to be sleeping comfortable while it was at sea, so, like, all of the engines blaring, and so, like, Mm. it... Like, there was no soundproofing between any of the walls, and you can just hear literally everything that's happening next to you on all sides. So that's kind of... Hmm. I feel like hearing weird sounds that are not from your room, and then anytime something's, like, just not quite well lit enough. Yeah. I mean, also just being on a ship, you know, I mean, there's, there's definitely like some potential creepiness coming from that, you know, just being, I I think also like one of the things they try to sell you in the whole experience is that it is haunted, but (laughs) I'm comfortable in haunted places. They're playing it up. So yeah, the hauntedness wasn't what bothered me. (laughs) Even the sound didn't bother me. I knew what I was getting into. I feel like the thing that scares me about a hotel is if, like, if it looks like it, it might have bed bugs. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's Anything a very straight like up health code related. <laughs> right. Yeah. I I'm definitely like um, in a place in my life, and I'm not sure how I got here, where um, supernatural horror just doesn't like I it, I I like it, I enjoy it, but it doesn't scare me, and I'm not really bothered by that like i'm kind of happy to go about my life and like i can watch a horror movie and enjoy it and then just like sleep like a baby 15 minutes later um 
which was definitely not true when I was 30. Like when I was 30, I would, I, I, I could very easily see something like that and then be up all night. And I don't know like if a switch flipped in my brain or what, like if I suddenly like, no, I'm less, I'm less imaginative now. Yeah, it's a good point because yeah, or you're like more imaginative, and the stuff that's like cooked up in media just isn't cutting it for you anymore. <laughs> well, I feel like if I were more imaginative, I would just be fucking myself up. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I've seen you know, I mean, there's also just the thing that horror stories and movies and whatever isn't explicitly about getting you scared. It's about creating this kind of you know, it's about exploring like an emotional space. Or, you know, whatever. I mean, so, so I'm sure that, that it, like, being scared and being afraid to, to go to sleep at night and whatever is definitely a, a, a form of enjoyment that some people get out of it. But, yeah, like, I mean, right. all, of the, all of the horror movies that, I, that I've really enjoyed that I've seen over the last, like, you know, ten, past ten years or so, um, yeah, like they haven't really gotten under my skin as far as like, oh my gosh, I am going to have nightmares about this for like, you know, the next few days or weeks or whatever. You know, it's 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 more just like they leave an they leave an impression in your mind that like is connected to like, you know, the emotional and tonal space that was being explored in the film. So yeah, I think I'm kind of in the same camp. Like, a f- films don't really scare me now in in the way that they did when I was like a kid. Mm-hmm brain just works differently now i guess also like how much of that is like you choose the media that you consume now more than you did when you were younger yeah that's true yeah yeah it's true i mean right i didn't i didn't i didn't say hey put on willy wonka and the chocolate factory with the tunnel scene you know, I, when I was like a four, four or five year old kid, I mean, that was also a movie that I absolutely loved, uh, even with the scary part. So, yeah. I made JP watch this recently, but for me, the scary scene from a movie of my childhood that I remember most is the Brave Little Toaster when the air conditioning is just totally melting down. <laughs> yeah, that was legit. Yeah, I mean, I can easily yeah, imagine you it as an adult how, if you're a kid, that is that scene is just nightmare fuel to you. The, the nightmare fuel scenes from my childhood were all from R-rated movies. Like, uh, I watched RoboCop when I was way too young, and that's that was a... Oh, jeez. Yeah, no, that was bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah, and if you... cute robot does all the murders. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, ED-209? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so I, like, I, I think my parents generally didn't like me to watch R-rated movies, um, but I first saw RoboCop... Uh, via the TV edit, like a friend of mine who, who oh, interesting. I, would, I would go over to his house all the time and, you know, we would like rent movies or whatever, but, you know, he also just like had some movies recorded off the TV on a VCR because, you know, that's, that's, that's our era. Um, but yeah, and so he had the TV edit of RoboCop recorded and the TV edit, like Murphy's, the scene of Murphy's execution specifically, um, is actually maybe, I mean, like it's a, it's a very gory and like horrible scene in the original, in like the R rated thing. And I feel like there's also like, there's a director's cut or something where it's even more over the top and like it just, um, whereas, you know, all of all of the gore, obviously, in that scene was cut out in the TV edit. And so you just see like reaction shots and, you know, the that's, cuts away from it. 
and so the psychological intensity of it is like through the roof. Yeah, that sounds way worse, actually. Yeah, it, yeah, and so yeah, for for my like you know eight or nine or ten maybe year old brain, that was like that was super intense. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it would have messed me up more or in a different way or something if I had just seen the full gore version of it. But but I think that speaks to the to, to how well made that. I mean, RoboCop is. I, I feel like it, it it's one of those like pop culture films that does manage to, to transcend and be like this timeless just yeah, examination of it's some kind of masterpiece. I don't know what kind, but yeah. Yeah. I, I consider RoboCop a genuine masterpiece. And I think like, you know, one quality of that is that the violence, the, the violence definitely does lean on gore, but even without the gore, it's still super effective because I think just, you know, everything else about it is like super well-crafted. I there's a trend in uh, modern horror movies, or maybe it's just the one guy um, where you try to sneak in like you're, you actually want to make a um, an art house movie about like a shitty relationship and then you sell it as a horror movie and then make that movie and you're kind of making both movies at once. Um, and I'm thinking of like Hereditary and Midsummer. And Hereditary, I, I didn't know what to expect going into it, but like um, I talked about um, not really being affected by horror movies, but like the first half of that movie is basically just about uh, a, sh- a family falling apart. Uh, Slow burn, yeah. Yeah, and that is uh, a real gut punch for me. Like that, I felt that like it's just, like in my mind um, that those people's lives got better when the demons arrived. right yeah 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 and i mean i i I do yeah it does feel like there's been this trend of like hybrid horror movies like get out obviously is like oh yeah get out's another great example yeah like it's really going for like this social you know commentary well i don't know about social commentary just like it's presenting a social reality and then building up texture with that so that when the actual so that when the full on horror stuff starts, it has like, you know, it feels earned and it feels like it has a real human dimension. Cause if you just start the movie and like in the first five minutes, you know, Freddy Krueger or whatever is going around just slashing teens open, you know, you're like, well, okay, what are the stakes here? Like, you know, are any of these people like real people that I care about or whatever? I think, so I think there's kind of a modern response to like classic horror tropes, maybe. Right. Yeah. I, what I like my experience watching that movie was actually kind of unpleasant because I was going in expecting, Oh yeah, this is going to be another like horror movie that has no connection to my reality whatsoever. Like it's things that I know will never happen to me that I get to that, but, but might be really cool. Um, but what instead I got was the thing that like I could easily see happening to me or people I know. Uh, at least for the yeah, first right. half of it. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And I feel like there's a, maybe kind of a social contract that was being violated there um, that a horror movie might be about real life. Or ra- yeah. rather that they shouldn't and this one was. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's a good point. I mean, I think they were kind of like maybe trying to erode your sense of like the viewer's sense of emotional safety. 
yeah. so that when so that when the demons showed up, it's like, oh well, you know, it's. I mean, I, I guess in some cases it could feel almost like a relief, and right. but then in other cases it's like, oh well, yeah, now it's that much more horrible because we know all about these people. Yeah, uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up, um, I saw somebody on Twitter. Make a tweet that like got no traction, and I'll probably link to it in the show notes. Um, asking the question: Is it unethical to advertise horror movies? Like, is it unethical to like place those ideas in someone's head non-consensually? Basically, I mean, I feel like so much of advertising is non-consensual, gross <laughs> yeah. in different ways, and. So that's a that's another topic, and I believe we have actually on this podcast gone into that, um, and I agree <laughs> with you. Uh, but also, um, like I think this is a little bit more of like a step further of like actually, it's kind of fucked up to like put that sort of horrifying imagery in somebody's head, and then um, the obvious next step is you put that idea in their head, and then you promise the antidote to the idea in the movie itself. Like the commercial is the real <laughs> horror. And if you see the movie, you will be relieved of the horror that we have placed in your mind. I almost like struggle to believe that there is a trailer, especially cut for television that like can get that much information across. <laughs> well, but I yeah. don't watch a ton of television anymore. So I can't speak to that directly. That sounds like a challenge, though. Like how, you know, I mean, how long is a how long is a movie trailer like 90 seconds or so? I'm, I love the idea of a trailer that is so intense and upsetting and communicates the premise of a movie. Uh, and then knowing because I was sort of thinking like, you know, I, I remember hearing about the original premise of The Ring and then mm. thinking like, oh, yeah, that's actually kind of cool. And it's sort of like. You know, I mean, sometimes if a horror premise itself is kind of unsettling, and I think maybe some people reacted the same way to like Blair Witch Project, um, where it's like, well, I know that in the film, these characters will be dealing with it and will probably get some sort of closure. So in some ways, yeah, like an, a, a horror movie with an upsetting open-ended premise that comes across really easily in a trailer is kind of promising you know, like, hey, watch this movie because maybe these people make it out and maybe they don't, but either way, you'll get more of a sense of narrative closure. Whereas when you just see a trailer for a scary movie, you're not getting much closer. Like, it either rolls on to the next preview because you're at a movie theater or another com a commercial for baked beans or whatever comes on and you're just like, <laughs> right. okay, well, I guess, I guess now I have to worry about chuds like living coming up out of my shower or something you know just I'll whatever go, whatever I'll go buy the big tub of baked beans at the concession stand and <laughs> and feel better <laughs> right, about my life for five minutes I'm, yeah i'm sure that all all of this all of these psychological dynamics have been weaponized many times over since the since the dawn of advertising but i i remember like um a friend of mine talking about listening to uh pandora while studying and just like the, the, for whatever reason, Pandora at that time was playing like an advertisement for some horror thing. And there's just like there there would be this soothing like like playing Enya to relax you while you're while you're studying. And oh, then no. suddenly these 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 horror stings were coming out of the speakers. Uh, I Jeez, do. Yeah. 
I, that's I, especially bad just because audio, you know, really cuts right through, you know, it kind of yeah. goes straight to your subconscious a lot of times. Right. The, other, the, the way that could be worse is if it was also accompanied by horrifying smells. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, it's probably the a good. It's not ready for smell vision. Yeah. <laughs> well, in video games, I feel like every few years at E3 or I don't know, probably E3 probably isn't a trade show like in that same sense anymore. But yeah, like every few years they, they were trying the smell peripheral and there would, it would just be like this little box with like different cartridges you would put in and then it would just synthesize smells by via API calls like you you would signal to the to the to the hardware that you wanted a smell or something and then it would the machine would produce that the same way that you would be yeah. you know, feeding sound data into a sound buffer that it that would then play through the speaker right i think it's just yeah you'd need to refill the the essential oil cartridge for gunfire right, exactly <laughs> yes, and like yeah. our game studio is going to be like hiring like I guess smell designers. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are people who work yeah. in that field and they're talented. So I remember, I, um, I, th- I think I remember seeing one of these smell peripherals when I went to E3 in 2006, um, when we were showing, I, w- I was working at Irrational at the time and we were doing demos for Bioshock. And I remember thinking, I really don't want to smell Bioshock. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, you know, just like yeah. a huge yeah. proportion, a huge portion of video games out there, you don't want to smell them. It's, it's it's sort of a sharp divide because the games that I don't want to smell, I really, really don't want to smell. And then the games that like have like tons of food in them or something. Oh, yeah. You know, all of the, the just beautifully detailed food dishes in like Final Fantasy 15 or Odin Sphere or something. It's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like sign me up. Yeah. But then probably the hardware doesn't have the, you know, isn't great enough to like actually reproduce what it would. What? Like, oh, no, they're they're optimized for the sewer levels no, would smell sad. like. Yeah. 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 I, I feel almost certain that some games probably like a Infocom text adventure have shipped with a. Scrat a sheet of scratch and sniff. Scratch and sniff. Yeah. 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 Almost. That was almost. There was almost certainly a a, a scratch and sniff Infocom feel. I, I can't remember off the top of my head which one that would have been, but yeah. The uh, the Glitterbitten Grove limited run games box just shipped out to people recently. Um, oh yeah. yeah. And that has a a world map of text world in it. And one thing, one feature that we cut from that map is. Us, every room was going to have a scratch and sniff smell. Oh man! <laughs> Outstanding. Which would have been super expensive because, like, yeah, each sure. <laughs> you're paying for each individual smell, and like, yeah, right, right. Which is why we didn't do it. All right, you guys ready to call it? Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being on, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. Always yeah. Great to talk. Thanks a bunch. Uh, uh, JP, if, if, do you want to, uh, if this is something that you do want, where can people find you on the internet? Um, th- I think I said last time my website is vectorpoem.com. Yeah. That's sort of my, that's sort of the base of my online presence that I care to share. Cool. Uh, Steiger, if this is something that you want, is there a place people can find you? I'm not particularly on the internet, but I don't have a great work-life balance, and I wanted to plug my preparedness program, so you you go to sfgov.org slash sfnert, N-E-R-T. That is the program. And there's a lot of just good preparedness information on there. Excellent. if you live in California, but even if you don't. Yeah, that's, that's a good resource. Thank you. Cool. Thanks a bunch. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords.
Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can discuss the episodes at the Topic Lords subreddit at r slash Topic Lords. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can find me on the Fediverse as mogwai underscore poet at mastodon.social. Also, I'm on Twitter. And you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.